the College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Welcome back to the College Football Fix Podcast presented by USA Today Sports. I'm Dan Wolken. He's Paul Meyerberg. We're back from a summer hiatus. It was a hell of a summer. What a summer. Anything happened when when we were gone? Of note? College sports blew up in like 12 different ways. We had the Olympics. We had just a bunch of stuff. It It was wild. Did you take any time off? Were you able to actually like relax a little bit? I took two days off um, in July. I took Thursday and a Friday off. I mean, it felt like four with the weekend. That was that, nice. That's it, huh? That's pretty much it. I saw the new Fast and Furious movie. That also happened this summer. That was this summer, right? That was. I'm summer. not familiar. I've, I've, I know the franchise. I Don't must be a say snob. I'm not a fan. You're not that it's bad. No, no, no. No, you're being a snob. It's okay. You're a snob. Um, so yeah, that's what I did this summer. I didn't go to Japan. I went to a sushi restaurant um, maybe twice. That's pretty much it, Dan. Like you said, college football exploded, but it seems to have come back together just in time for the start of the 2021 college football season. Yeah, it did. It's kind of one of the things that I'm writing about this week in the story that'll be up on USA Today website at some point uh, Thursday. But basically, like as the season gets going here, I just find the whole vibe around college football really strange because, yeah, like everyone's excited to watch the games again and to get back into the season. But I think it's hard to sort of just get away from this notion that this whole thing has has been turned on its head. And, you know, it's not just name, image and likeness. It's not just covid. It's not just the transfer portal. It's not just Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC and all these other conferences scrambling to figure out what they're going to do. It's just like everything got dumped on this sport at once. And like, is it even possible to kind of enjoy it the same way that we always have? Um, Yeah, I think we like you said, when Saturday comes along and it's four o'clock in the afternoon and there's like four games happening at once, ending at once, I think you'll feel a sense of like being back in the swing and the rhythm of things. But my feeling going into this year is um, like uncertainty. And that's uncertainty about whether how the season will progress in this environment. And we know that there's still going to be lingering COVID issues. Obviously, it's not going to be even remotely in the ballpark to what it was last year. But I want to see how the season rolls forward. I also feel uncertain and, and a sense of you know curiosity about what this season will look like. I don't know anything about these teams. Like, What do you take from last season? Like, who do we know about? We probably know about five or six teams. And then there's about 100 teams that we're kind of guessing about with the seniors coming back, with the no awareness about incoming freshmen, about, you know, teams with second-year coaches finally having a full offseason to practice with those guys, you know, with the Mike Leaches of the world. Um, so it's an interesting, unique season. Again, I mean, every year is different, but this one certainly has a lot going on that makes it stand out. Yeah, I do think you bring up a good point here, which is, like, what we saw last year, good or bad, good or bad, like, how real was it? Was it just a COVID thing? Like, if a team had a bad year, if a player had a bad year, was it a product of 
just the circumstances they were dealing with with COVID, or is it intrinsic to some issue in their development? Uh, if you look at, like, take a team like Penn State, had a bad year, right? And I think because of that, people have kind of gotten off the bandwagon. Was that just a write-off, a total write-off, or does it suggest something about the trajectory of James Franklin's tenure there? That does make this season really interesting because I just think every single week we're going to go in thinking a certain thing about a team, and then probably what we see is is going to challenge those assumptions more than probably any time we can remember. Yeah, and I think on the flip side of that, like just staying in that division, like we're, we our mind does go to, hey, does a team like Penn State bounce back? But what about a team like Indiana? Like, what is Indiana? Um, are, are they overvalued because they went six and one in the Big Ten last year during a year that we had a pandemic? Penn State was abnormally terrible. Michigan was awful. Uh, Michigan State first year head coach. Like, what do you make of Indiana? So, I think it runs both ways. There's, like I said, five teams, six teams that we know about that we can say are going to win the national championship because they're the same five or six teams every year. But for the life of me, if you wanted me to guess who team number seven was going to be, I could name 15 teams I think could land there. Um, but I don't know. And maybe in a way that makes this year really exciting. It just for me, from the vantage point that we have about trying to project how things are going to roll, I can't really do that right now. I really have no idea. So tonight, Thursday, will give us some clue, I think, or at least the first clue. Yeah, I do want to talk a second about the Texas and Oklahoma thing uh, because we didn't get a chance to really address that. It happened literally like the first couple days that uh, I was in Tokyo covering the Olympics, which created all sorts of other uh, issues and challenges, just trying to do some reporting on it. And also just we weren't uh, doing the podcast at that time. So we haven't really had a chance to sift through it, but honestly, like that is an event that has sort of cast a pall over the sport in a way that I don't know that one single thing ever has. Like we knew that name image and likeness was going to be a big deal and we could kind of see it coming, but I think generally things were going to go along as, as normal. I mean, this thing has created a disruption just in the ecosystem here that is almost indescribable, you know, not just with this alliance of the big 10 pac 12 and the ACC, which we can get into if you like. Um, but just overall, just like the way people view this sport now from inside out, I think it's just, it's far more cynical. It's far more, um, I, I don't even think nervous is the right word. Like, like people are still kind of freaked out about what this is all going to mean because as powerful and as big and as influence wielding as the sec has been when you add Texas and Oklahoma, it really shifts the whole politics of the sport in, in one direction, like so hard and so fast that it's almost difficult for people to process how do you process what this is going to mean? And also, like, by the way, we don't even know when they're going to get out of the Big 12. Uh, it could be as many as, you know, four seasons. It could be as few as one. We just don't know. 
but I mean, just as far as one event, it's hard to shake the foundation of college sports any more than that shaking it. Yeah, my favorite part about the Alliance stand is like SEC is like, well, we got UT and OU, and everyone else is like, well, we're going to combine Purdue and Oregon State into a great alliance, and us combined, our powers combined, uh, will equal your SEC might. Um, I, I don't really know what to make of that. I think like the immediate thought process that was here when you were gone um, immediately was okay. Like this is the first domino that's going to fall. Like now, like we were going to see a 2010, 11 style summer where things were going to get unwieldy and get out of control fast. That actually hasn't happened. I guess that's the thing that surprised me most is that we've dialed that back and it was dialed back pretty quickly. Uh, Pac 12 is not going to expand. Big 12 wants to continue to exist. Whether that's possible, we don't know. Um, but I thought those were, that was the immediate takeaway. Um, and to see things get, um, at least from an expansion realignment standpoint, brought back down to, you know, off the red line, um, maybe that's a comforting thought for, at least in terms of maintaining some sort of power five structure, that that's possible. Um, I don't know what you think the next five years will look like or when UT and Oklahoma will get in, but if that's the case, then maybe this is just a one-off that has enormous seismic impact but doesn't lead to some sort of complete refiguration, uh, reconfiguration of what the Power Five or whatever that might look like in the future. Well, I, I don't think there is a Power Five anymore. It's it's now a Power Four. And I think that the alliance kind of previewed where things are going. And I have plenty of problems with the way this thing was rolled out mainly just because I don't think that the commissioners of those three leagues had very much to say. And certainly the idea that this alliance is not bound by anything other than their word, as they say there, you know, which in college sports is, you know, worth maybe a nickel. Uh, I, I just like, I, I, I have plenty of issues with the whole thing, but I do think that it suggests because they didn't include the Big 12, it's three conferences versus one. And, you know, basically it's what, – what happened when Texas and Oklahoma went to the SEC is collectively these other folks looked at it and said, my God, three people, you know, the president of Oklahoma, the president of Texas, and Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, basically altered the entire trajectory of college sports – and did it without anybody else knowing about it. And we cannot let that drag us into a abyss of absolute chaos. And so I do think that for purposes of maybe settling things down a little bit, there is value to this alliance, certainly in terms of shaping what the playoff expansion is going to look like. You have three on one side of the table and one on the other. I think that will be interesting to see how that impacts the debate. Uh, so, you know, we may get a little bit of a pause, but I do think we have fundamentally taken one of the five power conferences and cast it out of that club. And I think that's a negative for college sports and for college football. I don't like the idea that the Oklahoma States and the Baylors and TCUs are basically – now going to be considered lesser and it's just a reality that's that they are going to be lesser in pretty much every respect except for 
you know, potentially they'll have access to the playoff, just like the AAC and Mountain West and Conference USA, depending on how they they get this done. But it's it's definitely um, it's definitely unfortunate because I like more teams being in the mix, not less. Yeah, even if it's like a cursory list of teams, I do like the fact that there are 65, 66 teams that authentically, if things remarkably break their way, could play for the national championship. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to unpack here. I know it's been a while for our listeners to to revisit it, but obviously that that what you mentioned about breaking up the fabric of the sport, you know, rivalries going back centuries, that's a longstanding casualty of realignment, you know. But when you lose a whole conference, I feel like it's a lot different than when you lose you know, Missouri, Kansas or A&M, Texas, which we'll get back, you know, it just feels much more profound than that. Um, you mentioned the playoff. I, this is a, we should table the playoff talk because I know that we'll talk about it more in the next couple of weeks as we get upon this self-appointed deadline that Bill Hancock mentioned back in the spring about, we'll have a decision in September about the installation date or the, the approval of this 12 team format. But it, it's going to be really interesting to see how far that gets pushed back as the, as a timeline. When you have, uh, you know, like you said, three major conferences, three power brokers at the table saying, hey, we might need some concessions or we might need to sit down and talk about this before we just rubber stamp a 12 team playoff. And when we spoke last, it seemed like, you know, I don't know if we use the word rubber stamp, but we both agreed like this 12 team thing was going to happen. It seemed like everybody was on board at that point. But that was obviously pre uh, Texas and OU. Well, yeah, I mean, look. If you are George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, Jim Phillips, ACC, Kevin Warren, Big Ten, all of whom are new to their jobs, and you know they've all got different issues that they're inheriting and trying to figure out as they go through this, but the idea that three pretty important people were not in the room when these details were being discussed and being hammered out... Uh, I understand their concerns. I understand their issues. And, you know, the two people who were at the head of this, Greg Sankey and Bob Bowlesby, well, we come to find out that this is being negotiated between them while Sankey is, you know, sticking the shiv in the back of the Big 12. And, you know, I just don't know that Bob Bowlesby is actually going to be there that much longer to see this through anyway. So, I think it does make sense to hit the pause button and start over to some extent. But at the same time, every single week of this season, we're going to be talking about the four teams in the playoff. We're also going to be talking about what it would look like if it was 12. And I do think that's sort of a problem that waiting is going to, it's just going to create and increase the amount of agitation. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it seems inevitable, but let's see how far, like, it, it may not be 23 anymore, maybe be 24. I mean, who knows? I mean, who knows when Texas and OU, like you said, are in the SEC, that might not might not be till 2025, as ridiculous as that sounds. So we're headed for multiple years of this, which isn't that much different. We have different controversies every single year. This is our 2021 version. Absolutely. And, you know, I think um, the next month is going to be really interesting because there is a, a playoff meeting uh, in September. I think had Oklahoma and Texas not happened, I think the whole thing would have been basically rubber stamped, you know, at that time. But I think we're going to see a totally different scenario now. And 
it's just going to be a story that you follow concurrent to the season. So let's start talking about uh, week one. It's it's um, not the greatest opening weekend slate. Now, we have already had games. We had week zero, and we had Nebraska losing to Illinois, which we can cover in a second. Um, but let's let's look forward a little bit to, to this weekend. Let's start with Georgia-Clemson. This is a game that anytime it shows up on the schedule in future years, it, it catches your eye. It's a historic rivalry. It's two schools that are, you know, maybe an hour drive from each other. There's so much history, so much fan base crossover. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of Georgia people and Clemson people mixed in on in neighborhoods and offices, you know, in the part of the country where I live, which is Atlanta. So everyone's super, super excited about it. I got to tell you, I actually don't think it's going to be that good of a game. I, I think Georgia's just way better. Tell me I'm wrong. Um, I think you're wrong that they're way better. But I will say that, um, like, I, um, I pick Clemson to win because I'm just someone who kind of always believes in Clemson for some strange reason. It's not a strange reason. I just feel like they, they win these games. Um, <clears throat> certainly, like, if I imagine a result, I picture Clemson winning by a bit, and I could see Georgia winning by 14. The thing about Clemson um, is that we have an idea what they're about. We have an idea what their system's going to look like. I think we know that EJ is going to take over for Trevor Lawrence and be fantastic. Um, I just think Georgia probably has more of the splash talent um, than Clemson, which is an incredible statement about the way they've recruited and developed guys. I think Georgia's got difference-making guys on both sides of the ball. Clearly, JT Daniels, best QB in the SEC, uh, changed the entire tenor of that offense and of that team in his four-game starts last year. So, yeah, I'm, I'm picking Clemson, but I would be willing to listen to an argument by why Georgia can win this game by 14, and when they do, or if they do, why they should be number one team in the country. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm ready to say that Georgia should be number one, even if they win this game, because there is still a program in Tuscaloosa, Alabama that exists, and they still put out a pretty good product. But look, I don't think Clemson on the line of scrimmage offensively is what they were. I think DJ Uyunglele, as talented as he is, he's more limited in some ways that, than Trevor Lawrence. He's not as good of a runner. And I just think that when you're maybe not quite as good on the offensive line and you have a quarterback who's not as great of a runner, I think that's a bad combination specifically against Georgia. Like, I think Clemson will get away with that against pretty much every other team they play. I just don't think against Georgia that that's a recipe for success because Georgia's had all summer to, you know, to figure out their, their, how they're going to pass rush this kid. Uh, I know that, that, you know, Kirby smart, excellent defensive coach. Like they've got, they, they've got big bodies. They've got fast bodies on the defensive line. I, I just think they're going to be able to kind of smother that Clemson offense. And, you know, they, they've got a more experienced quarterback with JT Daniels. They've got so much speed on the outside. Like I, I just don't. I don't see how Georgia loses this game. Yeah, and, and Georgia's. I mean, up front on defense, they're they're outstanding. So that's that's like a, a strength against potential weakness. Um, on the flip side, I don't think Georgia's offensive line is gangbusters. They've got obviously one stud 
in the middle. I think they're, they're rebuilding. I don't think they're experienced. I think they've got something between 35 and 40 career starts coming back. And Clemson's defensive line is good enough to chew them up. You know, I think Brzee, Murphy, those guys up front, those sophomores are going to be superstars, both of them. Um, so I think Clemson has the chance to do what to Georgia, what you're saying. I, yeah, but the margin for error for Clemson is a little bit smaller in this game. Um, nonetheless, I'm picking Clemson. Don't ask me why, because I can't really explain it. I just I like Clemson to win this game. And, and look, like I, I think we've talked about this on when we were filming something for for USA Today. This is like a nice game, and it's a really big game, like you said, on future schedules. And in August and July, when you're looking ahead to week one, you circle this game because it's Georgia, Clemson, two top five teams. But then you remember, look, like the loser of this game is like a half game out of the playoff race. You know, there's like, yeah, like if you lose another, you're kind of in trouble, maybe. But there's no like you're out eviction from playing for the national championship for the loser. So the stakes are not as high as we want to make them out to be. Maybe they would have been in 2013 when these two teams met in Death Valley, Clemson won by a field goal back in the BCS days. Um, so I think we should keep that in mind. This is like a really, really great, really great exhibition game that'll tell us a lot about both teams, but in the long run probably won't keep either team out of the playoff based off a loss. Probably definitely won't keep a losing team out of the playoff if they get there with one loss in early December. I think there's some institutional bias toward Clemson that is echoed in what you're saying. I think it shows up in the odds. Clemson's about a field goal favorite in some places. And I get it. Like they've won two national titles. Their coaching staff has been extremely good in big games. They have won a lot of these types of games. I just look at this and say, to me, this is a year where we're gonna we're gonna see maybe a little bit of a soft underbelly in the Clemson program. They're obviously very good. They have a lot of talent, but this just doesn't look to me like the same program where they were just cycling in, you know, all American defensive linemen one after the other after the other. They were so deep at wide receiver. You know, you had Travis Etienne who had so much of the workload uh, the last few years. I I just don't think they're as good. And like, it wouldn't surprise me if Clemson's not in the playoff this year. I I don't know why I feel that way exactly. Cause I think they probably will go on regardless of what happens against Georgia and, and beat up on the ACC. But I, I, I think this game is, is big for them because I think if they do get blown out, there's there's going to be a, a bit of a narrative, and it's not just this season. It's what happened against Ohio State. It's what happened against LSU a couple years ago. Do they are not that there's something wrong, but I think they need to win this game, or there will be people like me going around saying, "Hey, has Clemson kind of lost its edge a little bit?" And I think that would be fair, actually, if they if they lose this game. Well, I think the questions are valid based off what we've seen the last two Januarys, you know. And and I think to a degree, we we kind of ask similar questions every time Alabama comes off a blowout loss, or at least even a loss period in the postseason. You know, we asked it coming off the game in San Jose, whether you know Alabama had been exposed by Clemson, and then if the tide had turned, uh, the answer was no. So I think those are very fair questions. And, and to your point about like just checking Clemson into the playoff, uh, 
yeah, like you want to bet Clemson against the field. I, I would take Clemson against the field of the ACC. I mean, to not do so would ignore the fact they've won, what, six straight and have been in every single playoff in the last five. Um, however, just in their own division, in the Atlantic, NC State is dang good. They're good. Boston College is good. They're really well coached. Uh, I think Wake Forest is sneaky. Um, not to say any one of those three can beat them, but those are three tougher tests than Clemson has had in the last couple of years in that division. Uh, Miami and UNC are top 15 teams. UNC might be a top 10 team. Um, Pitt, Virginia, VT, all top 40, 45 teams. I think the ACC is a little bit better than what we've seen in the past, even at the top with those three teams. So, yeah, I mean, a win wouldn't just be enormous in terms of validation and, and a rebuttal to the things that we're saying about Clemson potentially having a weak spot, but um, it would ensure that they would get into the playoff because they would be undefeated going into the ACC. I don't think they're getting in with two losses. Um, certainly they're not getting in with two losses and a loss to you know Miami or UNC in the conference championship. Yeah, still a lot to play out there, but I'm looking forward to this game just, just to get a sense of what these teams are going to be. And, and we didn't talk about the Georgia end of it that much. This is kind of being framed around here a little bit is like the put up or shut up year for Kirby smart. Not that he's going to get fired. Cause that's obviously not even under discussion at this point, but I mean, there's no mistaking the fact that they've had all this talent. You know, they've had these unbelievable recruiting classes and that there hasn't quite been that, that year where it all comes together. Obviously, they beat Oklahoma and came within a play of winning the national championship. If if the you know the the pass the fourth and whatever it was pass and overtime doesn't happen, um, we look at this totally differently. But you know, for Kirby Smart and those guys, and I do think it'll make a difference that you're in year two of the uh, the Todd Munkin offense. I, I think we'll see maybe a little bit more just with the a full off season and not COVID practices, like we'll, we'll have a better sense of what that's going to look like. Uh, but yeah, this is a big year for Georgia too. Yeah. I don't I, like Kirby's gotten really close. We've got four straight top 10 finishes. I hate to criticize him because to criticize him is, is kind of silly. He's achieved a lot. Anything this side of Saban or Dabo he's, he's matched. Um, but Georgia as a program, I mean, is that is that more the dialogue? Not put up or shut up Kirby, just kind of put up or shut up Georgia? I mean, we're, we're 40 years removed now from a national championship. Countless <laughs> opportunities, countless teams that could have won it and have it. Um, that, to me, is a better phrasing of, of like, the impatience um, around this program. I think it's a little bit unfair to shovel it on Kirby. He's had his mistakes. I think he's addressed them, at least based off what we've seen, by hiring Monken on offense and letting him run his ship. But um, they've achieved a hell of a lot. It's just that this program is at the point where it's time like, come on, let's do this thing. You know, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with finishing number two, but it feels like time, doesn't it? Well, I, I can't put, uh, you know, the Ray Goff era or the Jim Donnan era or what Mark Richt did or didn't do on on Kirby Smart and this staff. Like, I, I don't think that's fair at all. But when you have the flagship state university in the state of Georgia with all the talent that now comes from a three hour drive in each direction from Athens 
and all the resources and fan support. Yeah, like I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that they can win a national championship, but I think it also underscores just how hard it is to do. There's only one team that wins a national title. And when you're in the Nick Saban era, uh, it's it's not, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, since we're in the middle of the U.S. Open, I'll, I'll, I'll give them a little tennis analogy, right? Like, you know, Alabama is sort of Federer Nadal. And, you know, maybe uh, Clemson is, is Andy Murray. You know, you, you win a couple here and there. You're always in the mix. Well, when those guys are winning all the Grand Slams, like, it's really hard to pick one off. You know, it just doesn't happen very often. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think it means George has failed. I think it just means like they, they are trying to do this in an era where the greatest dynasty we've ever seen in college football is operating at the peak of its powers. Yeah, that's too bad for Georgia. <clears throat> but look, Nick Saban can't coach forever. I mean, he's doing another decade. Are we sure? Most. Are we sure? I mean, he may be there in 2030. He's not going into the 30s. Let's just get real. Um, Wouldn't it be amazing if he was like 100 years old coaching in Alabama? <laughs> but like, there's, uh, I think he should do it. Like, he, he somehow looks better every single year. His teams somehow get better, it seems like, every single year. Like, he needs to not stop. Keep going forever. Don't stop. Please. Like at this cryogenically point, like, frozen Nick Saban on the sidelines. Yeah, it's like so. I'm a I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan. They just lost 19 games in a row, I think. And when they won the 20th game, I was like, "Damn! Like this isn't fun." Now you're just you're just crappy. Like you're not just bad. Like historically bad. You're just bad. You're not fun to watch. I'm at the point with Alabama where it's gone past like, "Hey, this isn't fun for other teams." Where I'm like, "Do it again. Just keep going. Win another." I hope Saban never stops. And honestly, I, I think, and I know we're kind of joking, like five years to me is like the baseline. I, I just think like the way that he looks and the energy that he has and the way that he seems invested um, and, and the way that his teams are playing, the way the program has responded to some challenges, I think five years seems really reasonable to expect that of Saban. And I think at that point he'd be past 75. Am I right? I got to look up his age. Yeah, he's yeah he's seventy years old basically, so he could do he'll it. Be, he'll be seventy on Halloween. Yeah, so I say keep it going. He's only one hundred and sixty-five and twenty-three at Alabama, so let's get to two hundred. Well, and speaking of Alabama, like this game that they've got Saturday against Miami, it's in Atlanta at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I think maybe like five or six years ago, we would have looked at this game on the schedule, and you know, tried to make it into, oh, you know, they got to play Miami and they lost all these starters and they're starting a new quarterback. <laughs> and, you know, you try to come up with all the reasons why Miami could upset them or at least make it a close game. And I think now at this point, like nobody is is falling for the banana in the tailpipe anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know what I, I mean? Think, like, No, for sure. This reminds me of like when they played Michigan, maybe it was 2012. Uh, in the season opener, and everyone's like, well, this is going to be a game, or when they play West Virginia, and they're like, well, this is going to be a game, and here's what's going to happen, Dan. This is no disrespect to Miami. I, I mentioned them before. They could win the ACC. Miami is going to get like an early three and out. They're going to have a really nice drive that like ends in a field goal, uh, and with like four minutes left in the first quarter, maybe they'll lead six to three, or it'll be seven to three Miami, 
and like there's maybe a minute or two left in the first quarter, and you're maybe thinking, man, Miami's really flying the football. Like, man, Bryce Young does not look comfortable. Could this happen? And then it'll be 21-10 at halftime, and then it'll be 35-21 in the early fourth quarter, 42-24 will be the final. Um, that's what's, that's what's going to happen here for Alabama. I think they're going to start slow, but eventually it'll be the same thing that we've seen every single season over in a Power 5 game. They're going to win by 14 or more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Miami will be lucky if they don't have happen to them what happened to Florida State a few years ago in this same position, in this same stadium, where basically Florida State's entire program got broken in two. If Saban had known that that's what this was going to happen, that Jimbo was going to go to A&M and make things more difficult, he probably would have handled that game differently, right? He would have like wanted to win like 21-20 and keep some momentum going at Florida State because that was the beginning of the end, um, obviously, for Jimbo. Yeah, but I mean, how difficult has it been really since he's gone to A&M? Well, it made him sweat a little bit, right? I mean, he's sweating a little bit over A&M. You got this, just to be honest, it's Nick Saban. But if you're an Alabama fan or, or you're at Alabama, you, you've got your eyes in the rearview mirror. A&M's coming fast. A&M. We can talk about them this season. They, not this week because they don't, I don't think they, they have a game that's worth talking about. But we'll talk about them this year. A&M is coming fast, Dan. They're, they're close. They're Nick, like Saban is, back. Nick Saban is so worried about A&M that he ate his Little Debbie oatmeal pie this morning about 0.22 seconds faster than he normally does. That's how much A&M stresses him. Look, uh, if I was at Alabama, I would be a little bit stressed about A&M. I'm just being honest. Maybe I get easily stressed compared to those guys, but I'd be thinking about it. Jimbo Fisher, by the way, just signed another 10-year contract. Yeah, 10 years, 90-something million bucks. It's good money. Nine million. So he signed a seventy-five million dollar deal, and now a ninety ninety something million dollar extension. I, I still don't understand why A and M did that, and I'm not even saying that Jimbo has done a bad job. He's obviously done a very good job, and the trajectory is looks good. And they what did they finish fifth last year or fourth mm-hmm. or whatever it was? I mean, they they were right on the cut line of the playoff, and uh, they're recruiting well. Like everything looks good, but. I still don't know with seven years and fifty-two million left on the contract why you need to rip that up and do it again. That that's just bizarre to me. I don't I don't understand that. <laughs> well, they start with Kent State. Kent State's a nice little MAC team. They might win the MAC, but A and M's going to win. I mentioned I did not mention who they were playing, but they're going to they're going to be one and zero, obviously. Well, there's there's no doubt. Um, yeah, Kent State uh, is is plucky. And mm-hmm. fun, they're fun, but yeah, they're going to score they're, a ton of points. But no, they're going to get they're going to get mauled in this game. Yeah. Uh, where do you want to go? The Big Ten's got a nice opening weekend. I, I respect the fact that the Big Ten is is starting off with a lot of conference games. Obviously, we saw Nebraska, Illinois uh, last weekend. This weekend, we got uh, Ohio State, Minnesota Thursday night. So you know, by the time some of you listen to this, that game will have already been played. Uh, but Saturday at noon, Penn State at Wisconsin, like that, that's an absolute corker to start the season. I think that's a great, great game to see kind of where Penn State is. Uh, and then also with Wisconsin, like at the end of the season last year, it just kind of felt like the air came out of the balloon on Wisconsin like to a pretty dramatic degree. And that's another one of those, like, is that a 
bigger problem that's that's kind of festering, or was that just kind of COVID and the way everything was lined up last year that they just kind of everyone just kind of let go with the rope a little bit? Yeah, my only issue with this game, Dan, is that it should be played in November. Like this specific game should be played in November. It should be very cold outside. Um, it should be dark outside. Um, you should be sitting. You should have a blanket over your legs with a bowl of soup when you watch this game. Um, having it in September where it's going to be like 90-something outside just feels weird. But, again, like it's a uh, like prove-me-something game for both of these teams. I think there's a lot more faith in Wisconsin based off their preseason ranking than Penn State, which seems a little bit strange because, like you said, they both had a similar experience last year. Only difference is Wisconsin got out at 4-3. and three. Penn State was 4-5. and five. Um, both of these teams, to me, on paper, certainly for Wisconsin, if they can solve their their kind of one year issue with running the football, legitimate, you know, divisional contenders in the Big Ten. I mean, le- legitimately. And Wisconsin and Iowa, I think, are way ahead of the field in the West. And Penn State is the biggest threat to Ohio State in the East. Um, so, you know, for both teams, also like a win, a win for both teams, like is a, a breath of fresh air. Um, you can take a deep breath. You can kind of refocus, and 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 both these guys have a tough first half. I think Wisconsin's got Notre Dame, then they got Michigan on, on back-to-back weeks. Penn State then gets Auburn on the 18th. I think they're at Iowa on either the first or second weekend of October. So, um, I mean, it's a springboard game for both these guys, but also for us just as as bystanders. Like, we want to see what these two teams are about, you know. So I think you can buy in on the winner for sure. And I think the big change for Penn State, like offensively, they – I think kind of admitted that it was a mistake last year to bring in Kurt Soroka. Uh, I think I said that wrong. That's one of those names that vexes me. We can each say it differently. I think everyone knows what we're saying. Kirk Soroka. 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 Yeah, that name just vexes me. Um, Sorry, Kirk. Uh, But he's not there anymore, and they bring bring in Mike Yersich, who has been at a bunch of places now. Oklahoma State, Ohio State. He was at Texas last season, um, so he he's kind of floated around. What what kind of impact do you think he'll have? Yeah, I mean, it's like what happened with Georgia. Sometimes head coaches need to take a step back and let their guys run the show. And I think you'll see a guy like Yersich. His track record the last four or five years is good enough. Where I, I hope, and there's no reason to to think otherwise, that Penn State and Franklin just give him free reign. Um, he's very good with quarterbacks. I think they need to improve quarterback play with Clifford. He needs to have a big offseason and show that he's taking the strides necessary because, look, we know that Stroud at Ohio State, even though he's a first-time starter compared to Clifford, he's going to you know, throw for 40 touchdowns. Like We know that quarterback play at Ohio State, their biggest threat is going to be elite, and Penn State, to beat Ohio State, needs elite-level quarterback play. I don't know if Clifford's that guy, but I think hiring someone like Yersich at least puts them into the conversation. Um, for what they need from the position, which they haven't really gotten since McSorley. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. So, John, question. 
With Auburn firing Gus Malzahn, it leaves Ed Ogeron as the SEC's only coach who has beaten Nick Saban. Who's going to be the next SEC coach to beat Saban? Well, I don't think it'll be the guy that a lot of people think it will be, Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M. I like Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. He almost beat Saban last year, and he almost beat Saban when he was at Tennessee. Fisher promised he was going to thump Saban's rump whenever Alabama comes to College Station. I think he's got a shot. He improved Texas A&M to 9-1 last year. He's got a national championship to his name. If Haynes King is the real deal, he's got an early opportunity in October to beat Nick Saban. Look at Saban's track record for losses. It's usually to a great quarterback, Cam Newton, Johnny Manziel, or Joe Burrow. Matt Corral at Ole Miss, I think, could be the best quarterback in the league. I'm Blake Topmeyer, and this is SEC Football Unfiltered, a new podcast from the USA Today Network. Each week, we'll discuss the hottest topics that matter to the passionate fan bases of the SEC. I've covered the SEC for eight years. As for my co-host, longtime sports columnist John Adams, let's just say he's got a few decades on me. Not as many decades as some people think. Contrary to popular opinion, I did not cover General Neyland, but I did interview Bear Bryant and I interviewed Nick Saban, and I covered Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. More insightful interview, John. Bear Bryant, Archie Manning, Steve Spurrier, or Johnny Majors? Gotta go with Steve Spurrier there. He's the great quipster. SEC Football Unfiltered debuts this summer. Let John and I be your tour guides from the season opener through the national championship. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Another uh, interesting Big Ten game right out of the gates to me is Indiana at Iowa. And who would have known we'd be sitting here week one really excited to watch an Indiana football game. But that's kind of where they are now because Tom Allen's done such an incredible job there. It's it's really a great story. And they're starting the year ranked in the top 25. And I think – for a program like Indiana, now you transition to what do they do when there's expectations? Uh, and obviously that that's a very tough opener to, to go to Iowa to start off. Yeah, I, I like you said, it's a really nice story. This is not like a team that's going to be five and seven. You know, let's just get that out of the way. I don't foresee that at all happening for Indiana. I just don't see a top you know, 15 finish again. I think that's really difficult to do. If for any other reason except for the fact that they play at Iowa, they then play Cincinnati, and they play at Penn State. They then play at, oh, I'm sorry, home versus Ohio State. That's just, you know, the first half of the season. I think it's going to be difficult. Um, but they're a nice team. I think just think out for this specific Saturday, I think Iowa is a really good team. And I think Iowa, I know they're three-point favorites. I think they could really put a hole in Indiana. Um, but, yeah, Indiana, seven wins, eight wins. I think based off the trajectory of the program, that seems like a fair ask. Solid, but to me, not top 20, top 15 material. Yeah, it seems kind of like ancient history at this point, but I'll be honest, this time last year, I thought Kirk Ferentz might be kind of on his way out. I mean, there was all the the stuff about, you know, the culture of the program and former players speaking out to talk about how they felt uncomfortable as, you know, young black men basically feeling like they had to conform in, in certain ways to, to this culture and it made them very uncomfortable and like it was pretty ugly. Like there was an independent report and you know they had to get rid of Chris Doyle who was the longtime right-hand man for for Kirk Ferentz. Like I thought he was in big big trouble. And then you know they end up last year going 6 and 2 and had a really nice season and finished you know ranked in the top 15 or I yeah, I think they finished 15th in the coaches poll for the second straight year. So why why are they going to be good? 
Iowa. Yeah. I think second year starting quarterback, uh, a really strong offensive line anchored by the best center in the country. I think they have questions on the defensive line. Back seven is really, really solid. Um, skill talent is strong. They've got another great tight end in Laporta. Um, and like you said, I, I think that they've gotten, I think they took a lot from last season, not just because they got through a pandemic, but because they got through a tough period for the program. Um, they got through two really close losses to open the year that I think, like you said, based off what things had looked like coming into the year, could have wrecked them. Um, and then rolled off six straight. And by the end of it, you look back, if they had won one of those two games, the whole year looks different. And maybe their opportunity looks a whole lot different. So I'm just buying in on Iowa, not as a national championship team, but but a nine-win team, potentially a 10-win team. And and to me, at least, certainly a New Year's six contender. Um, if they're going to beat an Ohio State, it's going to be because they got lucky on a specific Saturday. But, you know, Iowa's done it to Ohio State before. So I don't think it's ridiculous to say that they can win the Big Ten. Let's move over to the Big 12, Saturday, 4.30 Eastern. Louisiana Lafayette at Texas. Steve Sarkeesian making his debut. Louisiana Lafayette, which we remember had the upset over Iowa State to open last season. And they're ranked in the top 25 as well. And very good team. Billy Napier's turned down a whole lot of Power 5 jobs to stay at Louisiana, and he's making a lot of money there. But I, I think... You know, mainly the reason why he stayed is because he felt like he was going to have an amazing team coming back this year. And, you know, the, look, Texas, just on paper, should should have better talent. Uh, but that's a hell of a game to open with if you're Steve Sarkeesian. And, you know, not that um, we're going to start putting people on hot seats for, for losing a season opener, but I do think, like, if you're Sark, you 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 want to you want to win this one. I think that would that would certainly get you off on on a much better foot than uh, the alternative. Well, yeah, I think we kind of put Herman on the hot seat when they lost to Maryland in his opener. I remember being at that game, the look on his face when he walked into his postgame press conference. Uh, I can close my eyes and still see it. This is a bad game for Sark and for Texas for like a, a, a long list of reasons, like namely. Louisiana is 100% good enough to go into Austin and beat this team. Like, we all agree on that. But it's just a lose-lose for, for Texas. Unless they beat Louisiana 41-10, which seems, Not gonna like, happen. Yeah, seems slim, um, either you're losing to a group of five team and everyone ignores the fact that they're number 23 or whatever in the country, or you beat a group of five team and everyone ignores that they're number 20-something, whatever in the country. It's not a win-win situation for Sark, unless they blow the doors off them. Um, I think they win, but uh, you know it's like fifty-five, forty-five. Not just that they like covered the spread, but that they beat Louisiana. Louisiana, like you said, um, Napier knows what's up. This is a really good football team, uh, maybe the best in the Sun Belt. They've got some competition with Coastal there, but uh, a, a really good team and, and really well coached. And whatever or wherever Napier does land in the Power Five, I think he's proven himself to be really good at this job. Another big one on Saturday, I think that, uh, gosh, it may be in some ways the second most intriguing matchup uh, of the weekend is LSU going out to UCLA. And, you know, obviously for LSU, the disruption in not just their preparation, but in just everybody's lives as a result of Hurricane Ida, everyone's got to move out of town. They had to go down to Houston to to camp out basically and it's 
you know, obviously the, the kids on that team, their, their families have all, many of them have been impacted. I think they've got a lot on their minds and UCLA, they've got a game under their belt. And I do think that's a big advantage. You know, they, they looked pretty good against Hawaii. I, I don't think Hawaii looked good at all. So I don't know how much I'm taking from that game, but we do know that Chip Kelly at this point has established what they're going to do. He's got experience. He's got more talent than he's had before, I, I think, and, and they've grown up a little bit. They, they look ready uh, based on on that, that first game. How do we think LSU is going to respond, you know, not just to playing a pretty good UCLA team on the road, but just, just the whole set of circumstances here that they got to deal with? Yeah, who knows, right? I mean, I mean, you hate to say this, at least LSU as a program is kind of versed in this adversity. I mean, based off weather situations and moving games and playing games at different dates, it's sad to say, but I think they might have a routine for this. But you have no idea how they're going to respond. And, and I think uh, that uncertainty, like you said, is doubled by the fact that UCLA has played. And what they did against Hawaii was so vanilla, it's hard to take anything away from it. But just based off looking at these two teams on paper, looking at these rosters, this is by far, I mean, by far, not even close, the best roster Kelly's had. It looks like a roster that he's built. Um, I think they have the depth on this specific Saturday against a team that's had a unique two weeks to put a scare to LSU. But at the same time, like UCLA is talented, but but not in, even in the ballpark with the Tigers. So I still expect LSU to win. I just don't think you're going to see a well-oiled machine, like the kind of team that won two straight end last season. I think it's going to, it's not going to be like that, you know, running like gangbusters from the start. I think it's going to be a dogfight. But LSU's got too much talent to get tripped up, even by UCLA team that obviously looks at this like a huge opportunity because it is. I'm going to take UCLA. I, I wow. just th- think that um, I think playing at home, and I do think LSU like. I just don't know. I think where they are as a program, everyone understands Ed Orgeron's on the hot seat this year. Yeah, they won a national championship in 2019, but guess guess how much leeway that buys you? Not 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 any really. If you if you're at a place like LSU, I just too much turmoil. Um, the the Title Nine uh, stuff that. Uh, our colleagues at USA Today have done an incredible job reporting on and uncovering. There's just a lot going on under the surface of that program. I, I don't, I mean, you talk about being a well-oiled machine. I actually think it's a little bit of a, of a mess. And I think that they had an incredible, incredible set of circumstances and, and players kind of a once in a lifetime deal that, that carried them with Joe Burrow in 2019. I think I think it's going to be a rough year for LSU, and I think it's going to be the end for Fred Orgeron, and I think that starts Saturday at uh, the Rose Bowl. Well, yeah. If, if he's on the hot seat and they lose this game, it's a steady slide to to being out of a job because this is a must-win. They've got an easy first half, but that second half has got Florida. It's got Ole Miss. It's got Bama, I think, in three straight weeks. It's got A&M to end it. So there's yeah. no leeway after October 20th. I'm really happy we get a good Friday night game this week. It's North Carolina at Virginia Tech. Uh, North Carolina is ranked in the top 10, but they're only a five and a half point favorite in Blacksburg. And talking about another coach definitely needing a good year to keep his job, that is Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech. 
that program has just been through kind of a lot of turbulence the last few years. Uh, he's lost some very bad games. If you're if you're Virginia Tech, you cannot lose to Old Dominion. You cannot lose to Liberty. They have Fuente's game management has has played a role in in certainly in that Liberty game. Uh, the fact that Mac Brown has been able to come in and a couple years and basically just run right by you does not sit well, I think, with Virginia Tech. So um, I think Justin Fuente is a good football coach, always has been, always will be. I think there are other aspects of the job where maybe he has not been a great fit at Virginia Tech. But I think he's going to have his guys ready to play, and it'll be interesting to see how North Carolina comes out after an offseason where, frankly – They've had a lot of smoke blown up their butts. The five and a half point spread when I saw that the other day really surprised me. Um, you would just think based off preseason ranking, preseason hype, that NC, even on the road, you know, in twilight would be a four, you know, eight to 12 point favorite. So five and a half surprises me, makes me think that something is up. Um, I don't think anything is up. I think UNC is really good. Um, I think Mac Brown has, and look like, one of the stupid things about his tenure at Texas is that he became like this punchline that he didn't know how to be a football coach. That was, that was unfortunate. I mean, it was like an easy Twitter joke, but he's had teams that have been this talented with a lot of expectations in the past, regardless of how you think his last couple teams at Texas did, he knows how to handle this kind of preseason dialogue. So I don't think UNC is going to come out, believe in the hype too much. I think that they're talented enough to justify it. Um, so I think they're going to win this game. And, and for VT, a loss is, Obviously, bad news because they go at West Virginia on the 18th. They got Notre Dame on October 9th. So, you know, I think Fuente is not the kind of coach who's going to have to go and and take a job at, you know, FIU to rehab his re- his reputation. I think he's got another Power Five job in his in his future. But I just don't, for the life of me, see a reason why you should be confident right now, 2021, that he turns it around. You know, I I think that the the bridge is closed on that. You think that if Fuente got fired, he would go right into a Power 5 job? I, I do not. No, I, I just think his next head coaching job is not like, oh, I need to go to FIU to prove myself. I really don't. I really don't. I think no, he's but been it could a successful be like a, coach. It could be like a Tulsa. Well, okay, well, let's, uh, again, this is like going back to what we talked about before. Like, I keep thinking in the Power 5 dynamic, maybe there's something different. And maybe the, the way that we view those, like, top 20% group of five jobs changes. Um, so I don't want to say that he might not land in the job that gives him equal avenue into the playoff as perhaps the TCU job does. But um, I, I don't think that he's going to need to go lower rung, you know, Willie Taggart style to to get back to the big time. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, Willie Taggart. Uh, and, you know, whether it was fair or not, that was <laughs> that last year at uh, at Florida State was pretty, pretty rough. And, you know, they're still trying to recover from that. By the way, Florida State hosting Notre Dame on Sunday, which, you know, in a normal year or in a year where, you know, Florida State doesn't look like they're just totally rebuilding, like we'd be very excited about this game. I've heard almost zero buzz about this one. And another line that would, I think, maybe surprise people a little bit, Notre Dame only about a touchdown favorite. Yeah, what is up with? I don't even know. Like, I don't, I don't know what to make of all this stuff. Like, I, it goes to show what I talked about before. Like, I don't have a clue what's going on right now with these teams. I don't know how you could look at Florida State the last few years and what they bring to the table this year when you don't know who's going to play QB. 
And Notre Dame, despite a change under center, is like still just as good as they need to be to get into the playoff. Why is this a touchdown game? I, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I feel like Notre Dame should be like 13 or 14 points. Is that is that ridiculous to say? I mean, how why isn't Notre Dame going to win this game 38-10? Well, so, well, certainly from from the standpoint of like where Notre Dame's been the last three years versus where Florida State's been, that there's no question that this looks on paper like a very easy win for for Notre Dame. But um, you know, maybe maybe there's a bit of a Mackenzie Milton factor there that you know we don't know exactly. We don't know, frankly, if he's even going to start. Like they haven't totally made that determination. Uh, we don't know how healthy he is. Although, I mean, I think he's he is he is back playing, but they have, I think, managed him fairly carefully in the preseason to to make sure they're not overworking him. So, you know how how much he plays and how effective he is. We we just don't know. But I am excited to see. Like, all right. Like the Mackenzie Milton we saw at UCF was a pretty awesome college football player. He suffered an absolutely devastating injury. Now, fast forward a couple years later, let's see him again and let's see him in a Florida State uniform. I'm 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 all for it. Yeah, it's an awesome story, and everyone knows it, and they'll they'll talk about it a bunch on on uh, Sunday night. But that's fantastic. I mean, from not being able to potentially walk again to, to potentially starting on primetime Sunday night Labor Day against Notre Dame would be just unbelievable. Um, I just don't want – let's not set the expectations too high for him. You know, I, I, just being on the field for me is an incredible victory. Um, and if anyone maybe could will Florida State to do something, maybe it's Milton. But um, I don't think – I mean, maybe if Tom Brady was playing quarterback for FSU, they might win. But I don't even know if that's the case. I just don't think Florida State has what it takes to beat Notre Dame. Yeah, I, I have obviously been a big proponent of Mike Norvell and thought he was a great hire for Florida State, but we we saw last year they they just have a they've got a very long way to go with that roster. It's going to take a lot of of building and recruiting and and work. You know, really hard. You know, dirt under the fingernails type work to to get that program back where it's supposed to be any other games from uh, the weekend catch your eye and uh, you know, BYU going to Arizona. Uh, if anybody has, has won the off season from a coaching standpoint, it's, it's Jed fish at Arizona. Um, the guy is, uh, you know, if there were a, a winning a national championship on Twitter trophy, I think he would, he would win it. Uh, but obviously now the game starts, so the narrative may change a little bit. Uh, also, Lane Kiffin, Lane Kiffin, coming out saying Ole Miss is 100% vaccinated. That that was a huge win for him. He's also, you know, gotten healthier, lost a lot of weight. It's kind of a Lane. I don't know if it's 3.0 or 4.0 at this point, but <laughs> but but they open with uh, Louisville in Atlanta on on Labor Day. So um, those are some other maybe interesting games. I don't know if there's anything else on your radar. Yeah, that that uh, Monday night game over under seventy five and a half, um, and I'm almost tempted to take the over if I was going to bet on this game because I feel like Ole Miss is going to put up a whole bunch of points. Uh, reinvention of Lane Kiffin has been awesome. Um, he he looks like he's like a first year coach at Tennessee. I mean, only year coach at Tennessee again in terms of physically. Um, 
one game I would say that no one's going to watch, and you shouldn't because it's 10.30 on Saturday night. Do not stay up until 2 a.m. watching you know, non-conference games involving the Pac-12. But if you wanted to, Nevada's at Cal. <clears throat> Nevada's got a QB named Carson Strong who popped up on a lot of radars last year. I think he's a name that a lot of, lot of people are going to be talking about this year. So it's a good chance to see him play against a Power 5 opponent. They talk at Nevada about him completing like 80% of his passes. Uh, I don't know if that's feasible. Like I know it is mathematically, but whether it's really possible. But um, Jay Norvell over at Nevada has done an outstanding job with the team and with Carson Strong. So that, that's a game uh, because there are no 10-30 games of note. You did mention BYU, but they're going to destroy Arizona. Um, so I might be watching that one into the early morning on Sunday. Yeah, I think I'll be asleep. I don't blame you. You should be asleep. Be a human being. Go to sleep at a normal time. Wake up early. Have a big cup of water with some lemon in it when you get up. And then get some fresh air, Dan. That's what I suggest. Be a human being. I think that's a great sentiment to end this podcast on today. Let's enjoy this week um, and get back into a rhythm. Our body clocks are telling us that football is coming back. Um, and that's, that's just, again, stay hydrated, rest up, and be ready for, hold on, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, five days of college football, all the way until Monday night. That game actually is 8 o'clock kick, perhaps all the way into Tuesday morning. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to the College Football Fix podcast presented by USA Today Sports. We will be back frequently as the season goes along. We will be doing this regularly. We will be filling your podcast feeds with content as much as we possibly can as the season goes along. So for Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Walken. Have a great first weekend of college football. We'll see you next time. The College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.